0: This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful
1: speakers from around the world.
0: Good afternoon everybody. Uh, my name is Simon Longstaff, I'm the Executive Director of the Ethics Centre and the Co-Founder of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and I'd like to welcome you here for this important session. Uh, we have a, a really interesting speaker now who brings deep personal insight into one of the most challenging issues that I think any of us in our large times will ever, defa- ever have to face. Um, but before I introduce her, I'd like just to mention a few things. Firstly, I'd like to pay my personal respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I have um, my own kinship ties to people on Groot Island, the Anandaliakwa people, and um, Customarily, customarily would want to acknowledge those whose country we meet on, so I, I do so personally. I'd also invite you to put your phones on silent if you have them on at the moment. Um, you can tweet, you can use the hashtag #FODI tag, uh, it'd be great not to have it ring though during the session. And I should mention that amongst other accomplishments, Sheila's uh, written a book, The Right to be Cold, which is what we're here to think about today. She'll be doing a signing of the book later on out there in the foyer if you'd like to meet with her and and obtain a copy of her book. And finally, um, this is being recorded, so you may be inclined to ask a question later on when we get a chance to do that. And there are a couple of points from which that can be done, mainly just down there in the corner. Uh, If you want to do that, just please know that there will be a record made of you and and your question. Well, our our guest today is Sheila Watt-Cloutier, Uh, She currently resides in Nunavut. Uh, She was raised traditionally in her early years and then later went went down to school further in the south of Canada. She was an elected political spokesperson for the Inuit for over a decade and she's the past chair of the Inuit Circumpolar Council. I didn't know about this body but it's a really fascinating organisation that represents internationally the 155,000 Inuit of Canada, Greenland, Alaska and Chukotka in the far east of the Federation of Russia. You know, just imagine you know, one people with common interests across those different geopolitical boundaries. As I mentioned, she's recently published a book called The Right to be Cold. It's been shortlisted for a number of awards and here to speak about this concept and the dangerous idea that is represented in her people's vision of the world and the lives they'd like to live and our collective response to that Please join with me in giving a very warm welcome to Sheila Watt-Klutia.
1: Thank you for that introduction. Thank you very much in my language for having me here. And I'd like to acknowledge and respect that I'm also on speaking on... Um, Gadidal people of the Aurora nations so thank you for having me here Uh, it's a little far from where I come from I think I've spent a total of 30 hours uh, on the plane to get here and that's not counting airports and hotels so um, I am uh, standing before you um, a little tired but really pleased to to be speaking to you and and giving you a picture of uh, what is happening in my part of the world and how it all connects us, whether you're here in Australia or in other places in the world. So, again, uh, I want to be able to give you a larger perspective on how environmental degradation and climate change are indeed impacting on the human rights of people of the Arctic, who are most likely the most uh, disproportionately negatively impacted. And you will see that I brought the Arctic to you. Um, the, you will see the ice the landscape, and the human faces of my world as I speak. Inuit culture is very much based on the cold. It's based on the snow and the ice, and its very foundation, of course, depends on the weather and climate being cold, freezing cold. All living things, including our animals and our hunting culture, really do, do thrive on that cold. And when the climate changes and warms up, then of course it creates an imbalance to the cycles of nature, which allow for all living things to be healthy and thriving. And so that ice and snow and the cold in the Arctic are for us all about transportation and mobility and in the pursuit of what we call our very healthy organic country food. And we still rely upon that to harvest for our families. Therefore, the conditions... Uh, become very precarious uh, due to those changes that are happening and for us first and foremost it becomes an issue of safety and security. And so our right to culture, our right to educate our children, our right to be on the land, our right to safety, our right to health, they all become impacted and minimized as a result of the changes that we see, as a result of climatic changes. And You know, for those of you who aren't aware, because you often just hear about, uh, I suspect, the same way in which southern Canada uh, remains rather disconnected sometimes to its northern people and ignorant on the fact of, of, of who we are and what we stand for and the histories that we have. We were once a very highly independent people. We had our own education systems, our own judicial systems, health and social systems that were very much based on indigenous knowledge and wisdom. And we prepared our young for the opportunities and the challenges of life in a very holistic way. And these changes happened very quickly, even in my lifetime, you know, where I was traveling only by dog team the first 10 years of my life. And now I fly you know, long distances to Australia. Most of these changes happened in one lifetime, where most societies have taken perhaps 350 years to come from the hunter-gatherer to what we live today in this modern world. And so we were not able to have the full control over these changes that happened so fast. And as a result, there's many stressors that started to happen and we were starting to face what we call now, and we understand, historical traumas and the dependencies that started to uh, kick in in our communities. And so the dependencies to substances, to institutions and processes, of course, have eroded our sense of self, our sense of identity, our sense of self-worth, and our ability to think and act for ourselves. We gave up a lot of our power thinking that those coming in had the same wisdom that we did in, in respecting all that is around us and being inclusive. And so those kinds of historical traumas that we've now come to understand have translated into the monumental health and social challenges that are being faced by northern indigenous peoples. And I suspect the indigenous peoples of this country can relate very much to what I'm, I am saying. And so, all too often, these kinds of challenges that we're faced with are interpreted as our inability to adapt to the modern world. When in reality, we're probably the most adaptable people in the world, in reality. Because we've had to. We live in that environment, connected to that environment. That we've had to adapt to situations on a minute-by-minute, day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month. So, the issues such as climate change, food insecurity the suicide rates, we are known to have the highest suicide rates in North America, are all major concerns. But it was not always that way. And I remember a time when it was not that way. So even Canadian history, which is not well known by our, my fellow Canadians, much less others around the world, have not served us on, on uh, very well on many fronts. And so the social, the health and judicial challenges that we face today are not from yesterday, and they're not certainly, uh, a, there is certainly a context to them. The historical traumas, for example, that I speak about are forced relocations, where we had small communities that were forced up into the very high Arctic in the name of sovereignty, Canadian sovereignty. Children were, were sent away to be educated by others at a very young age. I was 10 when I was sent away for, for my education, and was away for eight years. So, I was one of those children. There was a lot of sexual abuse by those in authority. The collapse of the sustainable sealing market uh, by emotionally driven animal rights activists really put a damper on the ability of our hunters to provide for their families by marketing the, su- the, the byproduct of our subsistence hunt. We're not commercial uh, sealers by any means, but the byproduct was very helpful in getting our families fed during those times where we were transitioning from a very traditional way where we had to start to purchase, uh, you know, uh, ammunition and guns and modern technologies in which we could continue to keep harvesting. And residential schools, as I said, you know, many of us sent away. The dog slaughters that many very few people know about that government and, and those in authority killed off many, many of our dogs, which we rely on for transportation. It's all in the book, if you're interested in reading it more in detail. And so all of these, of course, have um, factored into the problems that we face today in our communities. And so we have to realize that the, um, uh, the, the substance abuse, the health issues, and the problems and the suicides are not our natural state of affairs. That's not who we are. And it is cultural suppression that is at the root of much of the, the, of the problems that we face and the institutional dependencies that have been created. And addictions and violence are symptoms of those traumas endured. So, as, again, as I say, I think there's a lot of recognition and connection that happens with other indigenous peoples of the world because those histories are very common. And so, But we've had our environment, we've had our culture, we've had our elders to be able to guide us through, uh, which helped us to adapt on so many levels. However, things are not so predictable today. Um, I see the strong connection between health and social well-being of our communities and our environment, Um, and maintaining our Arctic environment is more than just an environmental concern. It is very much uh, our right and our ability to exist as indigenous people, but precisely that right is now being challenged and minimized by the new unpredictability of our climate. I was once asked why I spend so much time on on working on environmental issues when there's so many social and health problems, and my immediate response, of course, was there's no disconnect between any of that. Because if hunting continues to decline due to the climatic changes that are happening, it means that there will be even a further increase in our already very heavily, as we are very heavily reliant on expensive food, it's two or three times the price of the cost when we live up in the Arctic because everything is flown in. And so already many people are hungry. There's food insecurity in the Arctic. There's poverty in the Arctic. And the switch away from the powerful food that sustains us and keeps us uh, warm, in fact, uh, in minus 50... You know, it's, it's the, the marine mammals and, and the fat omega-3 and the seal meat and so on that keeps us warm. As one friend once said, it ain't Lipton cup of soup that's going to keep you warm in minus 50. It's really going to be our country food, and it's perfect. The way the world works today uh, has from the beginning is that it's, we have everything we could possibly need and want around us. If only we could learn not to be so wasteful and not to be so disconnected from our food source, perhaps we wouldn't be debating this issue of climate change so much. And so that reliance on southern expensive food also deepens our reliance on government support, which is the very opposite of trying to develop economies that heavily incorporate the elements of our powerful, wise, traditional culture. And more and more... um, the much-needed skills that our youth need is also lost. Many people tend to think that the harvest, or the, the, the culture, the, uh, the hunting culture, is just about the technical aspect of harvesting the animals. That's very important to become the provider and to become a natural conservationist as you learn about nature and have a, a deep respect for it. But it's also the character building that happens out there. As the snow, as you're waiting for the snow to fall, the, the ice to form, the animals to surface, the winds to die down, you're being taught patience. You're, you're learning how to be courageous at the right time, to take the right survival-based risks, to be bold under pressure, how to withstand stressful situations. Ultimately, you are really learning sound judgment and wisdom. For us, is very big for us in terms of preparing our children so that they can make wise choices for themselves. And so all of that, you know, being how to be persistent and how not to be impulsive, you're being taught that out on the land, because if you don't learn those skills, you can perish within moments, and you can put others in jeopardy within moments. And those skills that you learn out there, which are so important, are also transferable to the modern world. In fact, they are a requirement for us who are transitioning into this new world. And so... It's, it's really about how do we deal with these kinds of stressors that are coming at us. The first wave that came uh, and how we've been trying to cope with that and what does that translate into, uh, the, the problems that we face in our communities. And so the more unexpected stressors that come about in our communities are really um, going to escalate because the world now sees the Arctic as the next great opportunity to explore and exploit because of the melting of the ice with the mining companies, the oil and gas development and so on. And so here here we are coming out the other side of understanding what's happened in our world, not from weakness, not from being just victims and not not just because we are not able to adapt, but because of all of these historical contexts that I speak of, then... Here we are now, the very thing that we feel is going to give us back that grounding, which is our culture, which is the maintenance of, uh, of the ice and the power of that as a life force for us, is now going. And as a result of that, big companies around the world are coming to exploit it. So we have to start to think in terms of, what are we doing on this planet where the Arctic is that cooling system for the rest of the planet And that air conditioner, if you will, is breaking down and it's affecting many other parts of the world where it creates more um, uh, torrential storms and hurricanes and tornadoes and more droughts and more wildfires and so on. And so that connection is very clear for us in terms of as that cooling system breaks down, other places in the world, uh, there's much havoc that is being created as a result of that. Not only that, we have the ozone layer that is depleting and and creating cataracts for our hunters and, and skin problems as a result of that high UV radiation, as a result of the ozone. And remember, we are a people, if you haven't heard this, we became the net recipients of toxins called persistent organic pollutants that made their way into the Arctic food chain through weather patterns where when we discovered that in the 80s, and our nursing milk of our mothers were laden with these cocktails of toxins. And we had to think twice about nursing our babies as a result of that, because these toxins would make their way up, and because it was too cold to go back up into the air, it would make their home there. And so we, for us, it, these issues that we speak of are not just environmental issues, they're health issues, first and foremost, for our families, our children. And so... As we moved out of that and we were very influential in being able to to influence the global community, that we needed to address this issue, that the mothers of the Arctic and the mothers of Africa and other places that need some of these toxins like DDCDs to protect their babies from dying from malaria surely the mothers of the world should not have to carry that brunt and that we should be finding alternatives. And so we, we were able to put a, a, a good fight at the UN level, put a human face to, these, to what we would consider in those days a, a, just a chemical story, and we put it the human face and made it a human story of human health first and foremost. And we were able to come out with a successful Stockholm convention that now diminishes and and, um, diminishes these toxins at their source. But we're not dancing in the streets yet. There's many more toxins that come into play. We now see flame retardants, we used in children's pajamas or couches and so on, in the blood of the polar bear in the Arctic. And that's just how connected our world is today. So in coming out the other side of being effective at the UN level in in, in addressing the issue of the toxins, we, we then moved into the arena of what do we do now about climate change. We knew that it was already tough to deal with the toxins issue. The climate change issue was going to be much harder, but to make a long story short, because it's all in the book, and I do hope that you'll you'll find uh, interest to read uh, read it in detail, but we decided that through the work of couple of legal terms in the United States of America, in fact, even though we were going to be targeting the United States for violation of the human rights of Inuit of the Arctic for their inaction to address climate change and CO2 emissions, we still rallied a team, most of them were American, ironically, um, to be able to launch the first human rights petition, not just names, but a legal petition, a legal document uh, that we prepared and launched to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, And I, along with 62 Inuit signatories from Canada and Alaska, launched this pioneering work on connecting climate change to human rights. And although in the end the commission chose not to go forward with our particular petition, because I think we were ahead of our time in those days, where most people thought, violation of human rights? How so? You know, most people are are aware and understand that individual rights are violated and can be violated. But collective rights was very new ground we were breaking. But indeed, collective rights were being violated by the inaction of large countries like the United States. And although in the end, uh, as I say, they didn't go forward, I think we changed the discourse again by putting not just the human face, not just being a human dimension issue, but a human rights issue. And, you know, it wasn't long after that we started to hear, uh, you know, movement within the UN to make solid statements about that, that the connection between climate change and human rights, Amnesty International followed suit, others did as well. And so, in that sense, I think it really helped in that way. And so, um, we know that in that rumble-tumble of um, national and international politics, the language of economics and technology always calls for further delay on doing the right thing. You know, when we go off to these um, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change conventions where the negotiations are ongoing, there's anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people, bureaucrats from all the countries of 200 countries that are there, you never get that sense that there's anything human that's being negotiated here, much less human rights our families, our children, you know, it's, it's bureaucrats that are, you know, trying to dot the T's and, and, and put in the right language, but you never get the sense of the heartbeat of these issues, and so we have been, we have been trying, and we continue, I think, as, a, as organizations of ICC that I was once a part of for 11 years, continue to go to these sessions to try to f- make sure that the issues of economics and politics, which are always so siloed, Um, and should not be. They're not separate. They're not siloed issues. Um, They should be seen as, 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 as being the connection to them, should be seen as recognizing the connections between rights, between the environment, health, economies, and society. For me, it's all one. So framing our stories in terms of the connections between fundamental human rights, including the right to health, um, there, and, and environmental change, we, we need to refocus that and the debate on, huma- on humanity for us, not just efficiency, not just industry. And we have to remember that the doctrine of collective human rights uh, unites our indigenous world and it unites all of us, indigenous and beyond, all of us as a common humanity. It, it it brings about the diverse cultures of the world, of peoples and countries. And so if we can keep talking about that and pushing that forward with our members of parliament, with our leaders, then I think that connection, that collective connection to our human shared humanity can spur, I think, our decision makers to act in a way that No technical, just a dry technical report can. And so, you know, here we are, again, I just go back to the human aspect of it again, um, still reeling from the first wave of changes and trauma and finally coming to recognize, as I said earlier, the breakdown of our society, only to realize this new tumultuous wave that is coming at us. Because for us again, as I said, the climatic changes are become precarious, and they, they, they continue to add that uh, the the more stressors to the human families that live in the Arctic. Um, when the world, and we've noticed this a lot in our communities up north, even you know in our own country. When disasters happen, you know, whether we call them natural disasters now or or climate change disaster, uh, related disasters, when they happen, we witness often people coming together, you know, communities coming together, first responders coming together, governments coming together to to throw in funds to help. And and there's an outpouring of, of absolute generosity and support that happens but when you look at our own um, indigenous communities and how the world often has just turned a blind eye to the perpetual uh, state of emergency that we've lived in, not just for the week of the crisis, but for decades. So you can imagine the equivalent uh, state and level of emergency every day without end. Where would you, how would you feel if that was happening all around you. In Canada, imagine there's been no clean drinking water, not for a week, not for a month, for, for decades in some of the communities. Imagine being poisoned from afar in the 80s when our Inuit women had to think twice about nursing their babies, and as a result, the toxins in our food chain. Imagine women going missing, indigenous women going missing, with no explanation for decades. You know, our, fa- our our mothers, our our sisters, our cousins. And the constant worry about your children being at high risk of self-destruction due to those intergenerational legacies of trauma. And the structural racism, in fact, in our institutions, which make you feel less than who you are meant to be day in, day out. What if that constant state of emergency became the new normal? What kind of psychological impact might that have on your community and so that history of all of that violence on our communities mirrors now the violence we are now inflicting upon our planet for me they are one of the same I understand the economy is volatile right now and we're talking about that in Canada a lot and um and, and growing the economy in the same unsustainable way definitely causes irreparable damage to the atmosphere. And it is forcing the planet to react with violent storms, violent storms and other erratic behaviours and events. So this is the connection here. It's not unlike the child who has, who has suffered trauma. Without care, a space to heal and effective coping mechanisms, self-destructive, self-destructive behaviour is inevitable. What we're seeing in our communities, the indigenous communities, and in our atmosphere are not abnormal behaviors. What we're seeing are perfectly normal reactions to extremely abnormal circumstances. And we have to think in those terms. Our planet is a living, breathing entity, and it too is in trauma. We aren't just talking about climate change today. We're talking about climate trauma. And so climate change is happening now. It's affecting everything. As I said, the Arctic is the cooling system for the rest of the planet, and it's breaking down. And what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. The right to be cold and to thrive, as we have for millennia, is connected to everyone's right to a healthy environment. We need to come together to address these challenges now because otherwise where will it end? And there will be more climate impacts coming to your doorstep. I I suspect they already are. Um, I believe you've had wildfires. You've had other disasters happening in this country. You should have seen the wildfires happening in Canada just last year. Um, not so long ago, in less than a year ago, and there are more floods, droughts, and how will we learn, all of us, to deal with the massive changes to all our way of life, not just us in the Arctic, for we are that health barometer for the planet at this time, where we witness the most minute of changes that are happening in our world. And so, We're at a place today, I think, where we have been trying for how long has it been since we have been talking about how to deal with this issue, and our politicians, we hear about it every day, day in, day out, decade in, decade out, since we started to witness what was happening to our planet. So we've tried politics, we've tried economy and technology, and we know that it hasn't really worked. We can't, I don't think, be thinking our way out of this. I believe we need to reassure society that change will not punish our economy, but rather provide an opportunity to flourish in the future, creating a better world for our children and our grandchildren. If we truly want to make a difference, then we've got to connect with one another as civil society because oftentimes our own governments are way too slow in trying to to make a difference, even when they get elected. You know, I mean, we had the same situation in America when Obama got elected, and he wanted so much to do the right thing in addressing climate change, but he was paralyzed by Congress with the House being more Republican than Democrats. Very difficult, even if you have that will as a leader. And the same goes in our own country. We have a, a great new prime minister, but the provinces have their own ideas about you know, uh, how to address their, the economy in our, in our country. So as citizens who vote, we need to be the ones, I think, pressuring our governments to do the right thing. And so we need to feel, as I say, our way through this crisis, that everything matters. And everything connects. And because it's through that, that human connection that we have, that we can come to common ground, not just in Canada, but in Australia, and create that effective change. We can counter, I think, the causes and effects of trauma in our Aboriginal communities and all of our communities in the world as well as our climate that is in trauma at this time. So it's a real pleasure always to, to be going far distances to talk about these issues of my world, way up at the top of the world, that depend on that ice and snow, um, but bring to, to try to bring together the thought of how we're in it here, um, not as politicians, not as... Uh, as bureaucrats, not as economists or scientists, but we're here because we're mothers and fathers, grandfathers, grandmothers, that care about the, the future of our children. And, uh, and I think if we can come together on that ground of understanding that the trauma that we are now inflicting upon this, ta- uh, this, this planet of ours, if we can feel a compassion and, and start to love the land and the ice and wherever it is in the world. Because I think we tend to try to protect what we love. So we all need to go into that place and, and start to love this planet of ours and the people in it. Because we are all in it together and together I think we've got this. So thank you very much for having me today. Nakomi
0: Come over and join me here, Sheila. Thank, sure. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I might just kick off. Um, it's not a very nice question in some senses to ask, but with, we already know that there's a certain amount of warming locked into the global weather systems and the ice is disappearing. Uh, so you've described in part some of the effects. Are you, are you optimistic or pessimistic about what is the future for your people in their homes?
1: I, I don't think... Is this on?
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: I don't think I would have flown 30 hours <laughs> if I wasn't optimistic mm-hmm. uh, to reach out to the audiences down here in New Zealand and Australia and to to promote the book in the way that I am because it's really about that connection that I have hope in. Um, I, not to say that I've lost all hope with our politicians and economists and so on, but again... They tend to silo these issues as though they were very separate from one another, and coming from the indigenous background of being an Enoch and seeing all things that interconnect, and that's how I was raised, I I see the potential of reaching out. And yes, there is a lot of CO2 out there, but you know, your own uh, great scientist, Tim Flannery, whom I, I met for the first time in New Zealand where we were on a panel together, you know, he's very hopeful as well. And, you know, I, I, I was very encouraged the other day when he said, what we lack, and that's his words, is imagination. So we have to start to imagine that, huh. that we can do this and not be so pessimistic and say, oh, it's already out there. There's no way we can do that. Uh You know, oftentimes as human beings, we have done bad things to our own bodies and our own, you know, uh, health. And oftentimes, we're able to turn that around by doing the right things. The planet, to me, is a living, breathing entity. And I think if the world came together in mass, en masse, to do the right thing, we would start to see the shift. I know that we have large countries like China, Brazil, India, who are wanting to uh, develop just like our countries have developed, and, and they are, of course, spewing out a lot of CO2s. But if those kinds of countries, we can reach to them, in, in, you know, to their ability to try to be the leads, not, not just say, well, you know, we, we, you've had your share, we want to have our share of good economic development. If we could change and shift some of those large masses, we could, we could see changes. Effectively.
0: I'll throw it open a moment to the audience if they've got any questions, but can you just describe for me a little bit of more of the world you grew up in in those first 10 years, mm-hmm. what was lost with the retreat yeah. of the cold? Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, again, as I say, I, I was the youngest of a, a, a very small family, small-knit family. Grew up in a very small community, which was a Hudson's Bay Company post. Oh. Uh, The Hudson's Bay Company, trading companies from Scotland that would come into the Arctic with the fur trade, of course, to open up the fur trade there, where we almost overnight were made to become trappers when we were not trappers. We were hunters for food to provide for our children. But all of a sudden, we were feeding the global market for fur. And, um, And so I was born into a family of two single women, my grandmother and my mother, who had already largely overcome some of the really harsh obstacles that they had to face um, at a time. And then when I came in, my grandmother started, and she was around the, lived around the Hudson's Bay Company post because there was no father... To, to be providing for her. My father was a, a Scotsman who didn't stay, William Watt. And so she was left with three children. And so she ended up uh, working domestic help at the fort, at, at the, the Hudson's Bay Company store. My mother was 10 when she started to help her mother, uh, f- mainly for food. And, um, and then when my brothers got old enough, then they, all, they became the providers. They became the hunters. And, and off they would go trained by my uncle. Uh, that's the humble beginnings I came uh, into, a very small town where most Inuit were still living in what we call outpost camps, oh. out in the land, oh. and then they would come in to trade and barter, uh, but because there was no, no fathers in my, our, my household, my grandmother remained right close to the post where she was working for a living, and, um, and we would travel by dog team to hunt and fish, and we would travel in in the summertime by canoe also to hunt marine mammals and fish. Mm. And that's the humble beginnings I came from. I didn't start to learn any English until I was six years old when I started school.
0: Mm. Yeah. Look, is anybody like to... I've got a thousand questions, but I'm not going to hog taking them. If anybody got any questions they'd like to pose by just coming down to either the microphone here at microphone two or microphone one. If you'd like to, you can make your way there, otherwise I will um, continue with what I've got. So, just, just go there and I'll, I'll look up from time to time to, to see if you have one. One of the really profound things that you raised, I think, was around the way in which economics and politics have failed, um, both to answer the problems but have also dominated Mm-hmm. all of the discourse in a way that mm-hmm. issues around rights hasn't been allowed. And you'll see the same thing here in this country. If mm-hmm. you were here for a longer, you would see people discussing issues where ultimately they get a report from Access Economics to say, well, this is the basis on which right. we can do it because we could cost too much or save this. Right. Um, are you having success in introducing this new language into popular discourse or policy circles?
1: Well, uh, not, not really. Mm. Um, because it's, I think, with civil society, yes, people start to make these connections, but that movement hasn't really civil been strong society,
0: yet. It also gets seduced by it. I mean, you'll see plenty of people yeah. in civil society. who will say, "Well, we'll make all the arguments, right. the United, but strong. now we're going to get the economics report to That's show right. why we should do it."
1: Exactly. Well, I mean, that that was the issue. That 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 was the reason why we decided in in uh, uh, the late nineties to start, actually the early 2000s, to start the process of making climate change a human rights issue. We had been rather successful with getting, and we were successful actually, because the Stockholm Convention was signed. Uh, Today our country food is safer than it was in those years because of those toxins that are being banned at their source. So I know that I trust in the world being able to come together to do the right thing, because I've seen it, I've witnessed it, I've been part of it. But with climate change, it's much harder, you know, because there's so much more vest- vested interest in, in, in business and money and so on. But that's why we decided that we needed to do something that was much uh, stronger in terms of getting global attention in launching that petition to target the United States, who was always the odd man out in the dialogue on lowering greenhouse gas emissions. In those days, we were dealing with the Bush administration tough administration in those days to deal with. And they were constantly saying, if one American loses a job, we will not be changing any of our economic or environmental policies. And so that's that's the kind of government we were up against. And we decided, let's, and, and with, as I say, most of my team was American, you know, because civil society in America were ahead of their own government in those days. And ultimately, you know, he eventually got voted out. But I think that was part of the movement as well, it was we just can't have that kind of thinking anymore forever if we think that we can still have a planet intact for our, gen- our children and grandchildren to come.
0: Yeah. Microphone too. So it'll, it'll probably come on automatically. Just on the point about the uh, petition to the Inter-American Commission, you said that it was a kind of pioneering um, petition that was made and that the Commission didn't proceed with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but since that time, there's been a lot of other litigation around the world True. about climate change. True. I'm interested to know, do you think there's scope to go back to the Commission or where else do you see the next kind of legal battleground for these kind of issues?
1: Well as I as I write about, and I, I don't know if I mentioned it today, um, there were uh, what we call, I guess, outcrops of our petition, where it allowed for other people to start to assert their rights and defend their way of life. And even though the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights chose not to proceed with the Inuit petition, because in those days, there was a big hold, I think, even from the State Department of that that administration I spoke of, because when we heard that our petition was not going to be looked at uh, seriously, it came from someone from the State Department, who otherwise would not have had any business telling one of my lawyers that they weren't going to go ahead with it. So there was some kind of a hold, political hold. In having said that, as I said, I think uh, other people were, you know, in Alaska, I think there was a a group of people who, uh, who stood to try to uh, launch a lawsuit against some big companies. It got thrown out, but at least they stood up and attempted to do that. Because oftentimes, when you're doing this work, it's not just the ultimate goal that you need to be reaching for. It's the power is in the attempt. And that, to me, has really helped me in the life's work that I've been doing, is knowing that the journey is that destination, uh, that the power is in the attempt of, of trying to, to, to make a difference. And through that attempt... You, you get a lot more people understanding the issue and supporting you. Um, there was a time, I think almost a year after we had launched our petition, the same um, earthjustice.org from San Francisco who helped us as, as part of our legal team went to the same commission to um, fight for uh, people from southern parts of the world for their access to water, for the right to water well, the commission was much more open to them than they had been with us. Because I think time had passed, they understood better what we were trying to do. But also, because the right to water was more easily understandable than the right to ice.
0: Mm.
1: (laughs) You know? People say, well, right to cold or ice? What is that? Um, You know, so it was more relatable. And so they they made more headway than we did, but there were others, the Maldives case, you know, where mm. they were able to make a difference and impact was based on the work that we pioneered. So in that sense, it wasn't a loss. I didn't feel like it was. I was disappointed, of course.
0: It's ultimately about the you preconditions know? to maintain a certain way of life, isn't it? It to is. View it,
1: it is. Um, but his, I don't know if his question was fully answered. But um, you know, again, I think we were, as I say, ahead of our time, but I think there is ways in which you can still go into, you know, such as the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights to continue to push and forge whatever the causes are. And I think there's more, perhaps more uh, openness to seeing climate change as a human rights issue.
0: Amongst the Inuit community, is there appetite to bring some sort of further legal action or is it more focused on the political aspects? Yeah,
1: right now it's more focused on the political action. You know why? Um, It's very sad to say this, but, you know, not for everyone, but because we are so vulnerable and poor in the Arctic and want jobs so badly, we often are, are, are opening the doors for these large companies to come in because they're dangling that big carrot, that only one carrot of to exploit and explore the riches that are, are making their way up uh, as a result of the melting
0: of ice. And it's causing a lot of tension in those communities. It, yes,
1: it's causing uh, tension. In fact, we have a, a small community called Clyde River. If you want to Google that, Clyde River, who are now a small community defending seismic testing, seismic testing that, that they're doing, that these big companies are doing for oil and gas searching for oil and gas under that, in in the Arctic sink. And this small community of Clyde River has really made its name, and once you Google it, you're going to see everything come up, where they've, in fact, been fighting so hard that they are... The Supreme Court of Canada is now open to hearing their case in the next couple of months.
0: Is this fighting against or...?
1: Against seismic testing that will um, destroy the marine mammals, you know, the, the... Whales will lose their hearing, they're, they're, there's all kinds of things that are going to happen, uh, very negative things that will happen to that marine mammal sanctuary who can, area.
0: Who can speak for country in your, in your arrangements? Do, do, do each group have a right to speak for its own country Exclusively and without regard to others, or do you have larger... You
1: mean the Inuit Circumpolar yeah, Council? Yeah, yeah. Yes, we do. I mean, we have, we have national presidents in each country as well. We have, uh, in, in Canada, we have what we call the Inuit Taperit Kanatami, meaning the national body that represents Inuit at the national level. And then we have the ICC.
0: And does that group culturally bind all others as well? Yes.
1: Right. Yes, absolutely.
0: Now, one of the things that normally happens is that there's often an alliance between different people who are progressive, if you like, in their views on things like climate. You mentioned, um, it was, wasn't a big point you made, though, about the emotional acti- response of animal rights activists and mm-hmm. the impact that that had upon right. traditional lifestyle. Right. Is that an ongoing issue? It is. It is. It's an up.
1: ongoing issue. It's an ongoing issue. It was really bad in the '60s when our hunters went from making eighteen thousand dollars a year, which was a lot in the 1960s, where we were coming. You know, we were a transitioning culture. That the byproduct of the our hunt, what we had left over, we were able to sell and provide That's for furs, our families. The
0: byproduct being the, furs, of the fur, that, yeah. yes,
1: uh, of, of the food that we were eating, and if we didn't need it for clothing, we would. Able to sell the surplus of our by, the byproduct of our of our hunt, and and Bridget Bardot from France came over and you know with one broad stroke uh, demolished that that market and that really Im- negatively impacted the ability for our families to support their their children and families and and communities, and and it is misguided in the sense because. We should be concerned about all species. We should be concerned about all ice-dependent living beings in the Arctic and everywhere, um, and not be focused only on what they consider to be an emotional tie to furry, cute animals, you know, whether that's seals or polar bears. Would
0: society... And so, Would Inuit society have been more sustainable without that reaction against... Yes, all right. yes.
1: That was one of the historical traumas that I speak of. And it really negatively impacted our communities, because our communities are tiny. You have to understand that. And so if, if five or 10 families were sustaining themselves per community, that's huge. So the ratio of success and the ratio of, of, of uh, failure or, or, or depletion are not the same as a big city or a, you know, a big place. So if, if five or 10 families were making it, that's huge for us.. Mm by that, you know?
0: Sorry. Number two. Hi, thanks so much for your powerful speech. Um, I have two questions for you relating to climate adaptation. And the first one is you touched on it a little earlier when you said that traditional ways of life are being kind of dismantled by climate change and you have to let companies in. Could you share a little bit more about how now that climate change is happening, um, your communities are using indigenous or modern knowledge to adapt to what's happening. Mm-hmm. And my second question is about money and, you know, in the international climate negotiations there's some hundred million dollars that has been set aside to help affected communities adapt and adapt to and mitigate climate change. For developing
1: so, countries.
0: Yeah. Oh, so just that we are mean… are a
1: developed country. So the so can't communities tap into get any of, of it.
0: it? Oh. That, okay, so, so maybe so just That's first, a short answer to that second question. Yeah, that's horrible, but maybe just the first it's, one. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, th- that has been the issue. I'll, I'll start with your second because that's where we are. But that has always been the case for us. We'd say, you know, we, our or national organisations, our international organisations like ICC, are constantly trying to find funds to be proactive and to be able to attend these meetings, which are always far away in, in another part of the world. And, and bring those voices there when we don't have enough resources and funding to do that kind of active work. And so we often have to be, uh, you know, trying to deal, uh, get, get funding from foundations and, and, and beg the governments to, to be more inclusive and so on so that we could partake in this. But yes, you're right. I mean, those, there's, those are great funds that, that, that help people. But most of the time... Maybe not all, but most of the time they're for developing countries. And so because we come from developed countries, we fall through the cracks for that kind of funding. And that's unfortunate. But yet the North has, lives in third world conditions often because the cost of living is so high. If you look at a report not long ago, Inuit are the hungriest in our country. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, you know people, the housing situation is a crisis situation. Where you have what, what 15 is, to 20 people living in one small how come house.
0: How the Canadian government, no. are they not aware of this? or
1: They are. Uh, but we are just coming out, you know, having had a conservative government for a decade yeah. or so uh, that was denying the science, that was, you know, that, that was not focused on the people but was focused on trying to develop the Arctic to become the super energy feeder for the world. That's the kind of government we were up with uh, for a long time. We're just starting now to work with this new government, and we hope that the hope is that he will be able to do a lot more to help the communities. Your first question...
0: It's about technology and the integration of the uh, ancient and the modern, is that right? Yeah, and yeah. how that's being used to adapt to climate yes.
1: change. It is the Indigenous wisdom that is our saving grace, because most people don't appreciate or know the ingenuity of Inuit culture. You have to remember, we are the engineers of the kayak. The kayak, that you say. It's kayak, which is replicated worldwide. It's a brilliant piece of work. We are the architects of a snow house, warm enough Mm. for your babies to sleep in and for babies to be born in. This is brilliance at its best, ingenuity at its best. We are not powerless victims nor do we wish to be we have lots to to we ha- we have that we have the foundation we have the brilliance we have the the adaptable you know ability all of those things however the speed in which things are happening our elders now teach continue to teach the younger generation to say this is how you read the conditions of the ice. This is how you read the conditions of the water, or the, the, the clouds, the winds, all of these things. They put a disclaimer now and say, however, things are so different now because of climate change. So what I tell you is not 100% anymore. So it, it weakens and it minimizes the power of the, of the powerful culture that I come from. And so it, it becomes more difficult. So with technology... It becomes more expensive for us because now, if there's a certain routing that the hunters have been able to take to get to from A to B to either get the marine mammals or the caribou or the fish, oftentimes because of the precariousness of the ice or the lack of snow in certain areas, now um, you have to take longer routes. Taking longer routes and more pre- becomes more precarious. It costs you more because you've got to bring more fuel with you, more ammunition, more food, supplies, all that. And so we're adapting in that way. But if if things start to escalate and speed up, that's, that's the issue, the speed in which things are happening, because we're not victims and already many of our hunters are indeed adapting.
0: I think that's... Because of
1: that ingenuity they have.
0: Yeah, that story of ingenuity is a fantastic place where we might start to wrap up. I'll tell you one story from this country. I met uh, about a month ago a guy called Mookie who walked out of the western deserts and had first contact with European society only in 1965. And he comes from uh, an indigenous society which when other people were inventing the wheel, they were inventing the wing, which is the the boomerang. Ah. Um, And now... He and his people are using helicopters, using the technology that they'd invented, um, to map all of the ancient water holes which they knew through traditional knowledge. So this, yes. it's extraordinary to yes. see how these things can be blended together yes, in a way which absolutely. is, as you say, so empowering. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I, I was fascinated to meet you. The, I mean, Australia has variable climate but nothing mm-hmm. like the intensity of cold that right. characterises Inuit uh, lands. And the idea that that could be lost in a whole way of it, that to me is one of the most tragic and dangerous ideas I can think of, that 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 could just go because who knows when it could ever come back. And also the way that you've written and talked about trying to find a common interest that Mm -hmm. embraces all cultures. I think it's a very powerful way that perhaps Mm -hmm. we have to look to to transcend just the calculation of the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T or, all the lawyers, whatever we can do. So I'd like to thank you for that 30 hour flight all the way <laughs> to Australia, the stress and strain that that brings, but also for uh, sharing with us today your thoughts about this important issue. And would you please join with me in thanking Sheila. Thank you. <laughs> if you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.